Okay, let's open our Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know somebody's going to think, now I thought this was a Christmas message. Uh, stick with me. You'll see that this does have a great deal to do with the Christmas story, and we will get there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you're there, let's stand together and I'll read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll just begin with three verses, beginning in verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Let's pray. Father, we come and we gather and in our hearts we bow before You and we confess that You are God. Your ways are infinitely higher than ours. Your opinion is the only one in all the universe ultimately that matters. We live in a very confused culture. But then again, that's been the characteristic of pretty much every culture that's ever existed. We thank You, Lord, You have given truth and You have preserved it. We thank You, Lord, You've given enough light for men to come to. And You have revealed Yourself. You are available to those who are willing to come. Help us, Lord, as we understand these truths about You this morning. Help us, Lord, to shape our view of our own society, of our own place in it, of the message we are entrusted with, of what Christ means or should mean to people. I pray You give help as this message is preached and listened to. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now maybe if you're honest, you have asked the question, how relevant is the so-called Christmas story to 21st century mankind? Have we reached a plateau of cultural development where it's now safe and prudent to leave the musty baggage of religious traditions back in the dust? You know, it is uh, quite popular today to come out of all sorts of closets and you name the closet that people are coming out of. And typically, of course, that closet is framed as the religious traditions of the past, the uh, cultural taboos that come from the fear of a, of a divine being. If you've ever seen uh, photographs, I confess I have looked at a curiosity. If you've ever seen photographs of the imposing Manhattan skyrise, on 5th Avenue between the 56th and 57th block that's known as Trump Tower. And you look at those three upper floors that make up our President-elect's home in which his 10-year-old uh, son has his own floor. And you look at those pictures and you see columns of marble everywhere. You see them decked out with gold and silver and nothing out of place. 
Uh, You look out the windows and you see traffic bustling far, far below. You can make out uh, various aircraft going across the skyline, some of which is even unmanned in this day and age. And all the glitz and glamour of the largest city and the most powerful country in the world is sparkling in the windows like so many attractive diamonds. And you wonder, sitting in that sort of environment and uh, taking it all in, what does the humble stable of Bethlehem have to do with that? Is there a place of influence for this particular story we refer to as Christmas? Is it still relevant? I mean, just think of all that we have that they didn't have back then. We've got the technology to make life as comfortable and efficient as it's ever been in history. We've got the stock market. We've got pension plans. We've got uh, insurance companies of all sorts and kinds to alleviate the fear of an unexpected future. We've got sanitation down to the microscopic level. Amazing medical advancements. The average age of uh, humanity and their lifespan is up as high as it's been in a long, long, long time. We've got the internet where it seems that all of human wisdom and knowledge is placed right at our fingertips and most of us carry it around in our pocket. We've got social media. Our circle of friends today is larger than any people group ever in history, at least shallow friends. And of course, in addition to that, we've got Hollywood to numb the conscience, to keep us entertained. We've got Darwin to explain away the problems of origins. We've got the hosts of Freudian psychologists to explain away the responsibility for our actions. And of course, we've got designer religion to constantly explain how God is ever keeping up to date with the whims of mankind and how culturally relevant Jesus really wants to be. At least that's what you hear. Now when you drive by a nativity scene, what is it that you're looking at? I don't mean are they made of plastic or made of wood, and yes, there's Mary, and here's Joseph, and here's the baby, and and here's shepherds and sheep looking on. I mean, fundamentally, what does that scene represent? What is it in its essence? I suppose among those that are not militantly against the emphasis this time of year, they would say, well, it's sentimental. It's tradition. It's just something we do, and uh, to most, it's... It's a time to go in the forest and chop down a tree. and It's time to go find a turkey. It's time to sit in really long lines with grouchy people buying gifts for someone you haven't seen for 12 months. And you gather with family and you attend a church service and then you put it all away until next December. That's what it is for most probably. But I wonder if how many, if they were honest, they're unable to see the connection from that to now. They look at a nativity scene and what they see is a picture of weakness, a picture of irrelevance. Lowly herdsmen. A teen mother accused of terrible scandal. A carpenter with calloused hands and sawdust in his lungs. The stench of hay and animal waste. This newborn infant in the middle and all of them objects of pity but uh, certainly not a scene worthy of international acclaim and undivided attention. But what I want to point out is this contradiction between what culture esteems as important 
And what God esteems as important is nothing new. This has been going on as long as history. In fact, in the passage we just read, Paul is writing about this very same phenomenon nearly 2,000 years ago. And his timeless explanation shows us how to make sense of it all. What exactly is going on in that respect? Well, here it is before you. Now new generations have come and gone. The curtains on the stage have shut and reopened multiple times. The seat of world power has shifted over uh, to a different hemisphere, but yet the stage is still the same. It's merely the actors that have changed. And the fundamental issues have remained. Now Paul, of course, was one of God's choice men to preach the truth of the Bible to the Gentile world. And he arrives at this thriving metropolis of Corinth, which, by the way, in its day, was also a cutting-edge social experiment. They were sophisticated. They were refined. They were educated. They were the ones enriched by a thriving commerce and pampered by wealth and informed by the intelligentsia and sadly drowning in their immorality. They also as a whole failed to see the relevance of that same baby in the manger. If you could walk down Main Street, Corinth, and stop one of those people and say, now what do you think about the babe born in the manger not too long ago? And despite the time element that was a difference, other than that, their answer may not be a whole, whole lot different than the average person walking down the streets of Manhattan or of Helena. They would say, well, that's a nice story. I'm glad it worked out for them and all that. But I really frankly don't see what a baby born in a stable and eventually crucified as a criminal has to do with me. What does that have to do with my problems that I face today? I think that's how they would have answered. Now notice Paul's commission here given in verse 17. I'm just going to touch on it. It's interesting the first thing he says, for Christ sent me not to baptize. Now that's an interesting statement. Paul was not against baptism. That's not what he was saying. In fact, if you just back up a few verses, he's telling this church, I baptized Crispus, I baptized Gaius, and I, I baptized the household of Stephanus. So there was some right there in Corinth that he himself had baptized. He understood that God had given and commanded that particular ordinance uh, but what he's saying is he had no confidence in any external ritual to change the fundamental nature of a human soul. I mean, Paul understood that even baptism put in the wrong place becomes a curse when it's given an emphasis that God didn't give it. He said, I didn't come primarily to baptize, although he did do that, I came to do what? To preach, to declare the Gospel. Why? Because that message still represents the singular hope of all mankind. Now I say some cultural genius arises now and says, now wait a minute, isn't that message fluid? Should it adjust and develop with the times? Isn't it necessary to keep things up to date to satisfy the human craving for originality? We want something new from toothpaste to potato chips and everything in between. That's part of human nature. Now, uh, should the same be said of the Gospel message? I find it rather strange today that many seem to have the notion that preaching the Gospel back then was somehow easier than it is now. 
the people that are trying to justify all the transformation in the churches seem to have this idea stuck in their heads. And I frankly wonder where they got it. When the message of the cross was preached back then, did the people in the streets of Corinth just fall down and repent automatically? Did they love to hear about Jesus of Nazareth? Not on your life in most cases. So anytime a people group utterly rejects the truth, is it time to refine the message to fit the culture? Is it time to mail out the questionnaires and ask what culture at large wants and then satisfy their cravings and conduct things that way? Is that what Paul did? You notice Paul faced the same temptation that every preacher, and to some extent every Christian is going to face today. He says, Christ sent me to preach the Gospel not with wisdom of words. Here's what he's saying. Paul had no interest in becoming a first century Dale Carnegie trying to win friends and influence people. Paul was all for influencing people and winning friends, but he was for doing it the right way. And so what he's saying is, I made no attempt to dumb down the message in order to make it palatable to society. And notice why he says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. See, Paul understood if you take out the offense of the cross, you take out the power of the cross. If you preach a message that everybody loves, you preach a message that can save nobody. I think it's interesting he called it the message of the cross. Isn't that an interesting statement? You have to put yourself back in the mindset of two millennia ago. When those people heard the word cross, they weren't thinking of a piece of jewelry. They weren't thinking of a little sanded and lacquered piece of oak nailed up here in front of a church building. They were thinking of a Roman symbol of execution. They were thinking that that meant death. And that's exactly what Paul knew they were thinking. Listen, the soul that sins shall die. God demanded the death penalty. And so, the message of Christ is a message of death. The Son of God had to suffer and bleed to pay the penalty of God's wrath. And it's out of death that life comes. You bypass the death. You bypass the life. It can't be done any other way. I mean, imagine here this January, some wealthy billionaire for some reason uh, grants and buys a two-minute commercial slot. And he finds some refined, eloquent, real preacher out there and says, alright, you've got two minutes to say something to those hundreds of millions of people hanging onto their beer and cheese puffs. And he gets out and he begins to declare how all the world is sinful. Not just your average run-of-the-mill imperfection kind of sinful, mind you, but the kind of sinful that makes you a willful traitor against the good God in heaven. And furthermore, he begins to tell the people that without God's intervention, every single one of you is doomed. And then he says, beyond that, there's one message, there's one way, there's one path God has ordained, and it's your choice to come the way God has said to come or perish. How well do you think that would be received? Can you imagine? Listen, because the message of the cross deals a death blow to the proud ego of the sons of Adam. 
It's not parallel to culture. It runs right against the grain. And it always has been that way. What was the reaction in Paul's day when the truth was taught to these culturally refined people? Look at verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. Just like today, he said there's two primary classes of people listening when I preach the message of the cross. There's those that are said to be perishing. There's those that are said to be saved. There's the children of light. There's the children of darkness. There's the sons of God. There's the sons of the devil. But notice how he explains the reaction of the ones that he says are perishing. What was, uh, what was their opinion? You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't sugarcoat this. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You know, the Greek word there is where we get our English word moron. So he says the preaching of the cross to somebody who's perishing, the message and you, they think, are a moron. That's their reaction. That's just more pablum for the weak minds of mental pygmies. Get that religious crutch away from me. I don't need that. I'm more enlightened than these numbskulls sitting in the audience. I'm offended by a blood sacrifice. I don't believe in eternal punishment. And, oh, by the way, only a moron sees something relevant in that nativity scene over yonder, too. What about the other category? You know, there's those that hear the message, God calls them those that are saved. What do they see? They see in it the very power of God. They will testify it couldn't be any other way. My soul couldn't bear it. I have seen Him and what have I to do anymore with idols? They see forgiveness and cleansing from sin. They see peace. They see purpose. They see eternal joy. I think that begs the question, why? Here's how, or here's where we get down to brass tacks in this whole discussion. It's a fair question to ask why, because the answer is given in the next verse. Maybe you've wondered that too. Why has God given a message of salvation that could be so open to human ridicule? Let's face it, it seems to be. It's interesting in Romans 1, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know what? If the message made perfect cultural sense and man loved it, there would be no reason to make that statement. He was saying many have cause to think they ought to be ashamed of that message, but let me tell you something. I am not. Why has Christianity been almost exclusively a movement of regular people? The lower tiers of society. It's interesting what James says in his little epistle. Now, he's not stereotyping people wrongly. There have been some exceptions to this. But as a rule, he paints a picture of the rich as an overall category as those that oppress Christians, draw them before the judgment seats, and blaspheme that worthy name by which they are called. That's not exactly flattering language. Why is it that most of the exceedingly wealthy are famous? the brilliant orators and debaters, the high-ranking government officials, the Nobel Peace Prize winners, or the rest of the who's who in most of our race, 
most of them have utterly and totally rejected the claims of Christ. I think it's interesting. A little further down from the text we're reading, Paul asked the question, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this world? What he's saying is, look around at the ranks of Christianity and how many of these people do you see? You see, the Corinthians, I think, had the same kind of question. Where's the upper echelons of society? Why aren't they here? Is the message discredited somehow because Mr. So-and-so doesn't want to listen to it? Why has God allowed the rampant mockery of the truth? Why doesn't He just give miraculous power to His messengers today? Let's say here we had a dozen visitors and I said, well now after the service we're going to go down we're going to prove Christianity's true. And I'm going to walk there into the graveyard and I'm going to start commanding the corpses to come out and uh, they're going to climb right out from six feet under the frozen ground. That might make the newspaper. It might fill the room the next Sunday, but you know what it wouldn't do? It wouldn't save anybody. How about if we could just call down fire from heaven like Elijah? The disciples asked that, didn't they? Well, that would stop the naysayers dead in their tracks. There's a couple reasons for that. For one thing, those external things can not save a person. Listen, the Apostle Paul in the age of apostles, which has ended by the way, he had miracle working power granted to him. But he didn't say, I go out, I've been commissioned to preach miracles. I've been commissioned to preach signs and wonders. He said, I've been commissioned to preach a message of death. And guess what? I'm not going to stray from it. You know, if somebody's sitting, they say, well, you know, I'd, I'd believe in Christ if He'd just show me a sign. Can I be brutally honest with such a person? No, you wouldn't. The Bible says if you reject the written Word of God, you won't believe even though one rose from the dead. And boy, has history proven that one true. Now notice verse 19. He's quoting Isaiah 24, but here's what he says. For it is written. Here's the reason why things appear this way. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now somebody says, wait just a minute now. I thought wisdom and prudence were good things. I, uh, I open up to the book of Proverbs. In fact, the Lord Himself says, wisdom's the principal thing. He says, I wisdom dwell with prudence. Well, there you have it. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Prudence is practical understanding. It's the ability to assess a situation Make a change in your course, deal with it accordingly, and press on. Wisdom and prudence aren't bad in and of themselves. In fact, they are reflections of the character of God. But what he's speaking about is the wisdom or prudence in parentheses that's purely the result of humanistic reason. In other words, he's talking about the attempt to understand life, mortality, immortality, the unseen world, origins and future judgment apart from what God has revealed. 
Think about this for a minute. Did Lucifer have wisdom and prudence? You know, Lucifer could say a lot about origins, couldn't he? According to Job 38.7, he was there. He watched the world get spoken into existence. Lucifer could say a lot of things about God. As the covering cherub, he physically stared at his throne. Lucifer was quite an administrator. He was the chief of the angels when he was created. He was beautiful, musical, brilliant, talented with one fatal flaw. Because of these gifts he'd been given, his heart was puffed up within him, and he decided, I no longer need to be subject to the One who created me. And now all of those gifts of his are a source of untold evil in the universe. Do you think there's any people like that on earth today? Oh, they're beautiful. They have administrative ability. They're gifted. Musical. Voice like an angel. Intellectually brilliant. Philosophical mind. Great writer. Eloquent. Wonderful gift with one major flaw. They voted God out of their universe. And it's a source of unbelievable wickedness. Basically what's being said here is God has intentionally designed the message of Christ so that you cannot find it by worldly wisdom. That's part of what he's saying. In fact, if you jump down a little bit, he says, listen, it has pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. What a statement. It was God's pleasure that He would use this kind of communication that the world looked at as moronic, and that was what God was going to use to rescue men from darkness. Isn't that interesting? You cannot unlock its mysteries through giving gold or diamonds. You can't give money for the gift of the Holy Ghost like Simon the Sorcerer tried. You can't read books on philosophy and psychology and every other ology apart from what God has revealed and find any grain of eternal truth. And God has done that on purpose. Only those who are willing to be dethroned from their own little universe can ever understand who Christ is and why He came. You know, it's interesting. You think about God saying, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, the worldly wise. You know, that's not something God just merely did in the past. Nor is it something God's going to just do in the future. That is something that it is God's character to do, and He is doing even today. Think back for a minute to the Garden of Eden just after the sin happened. And God's going to come deal with the situation. Now how is He going to deal with it? Surely Lucifer has to be hurled into hell immediately. I mean, that much is obvious, right? You've got to get rid of him. And now how is God going to remedy the sin problem? He's got to work through Adam. Adam's the federal head of the human race. Adam's the strong one. Adam's the leader. But God promises the Messiah is going to come through the seed of the woman being virgin born. The woman being called a weaker vessel in Scripture, that's not a disparaging term. It's just the way God has ordered things. And God begins to destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
14 centuries after that, roughly, the world had things all figured out. Wisdom and prudence had reached their apex. Never mind the fact the the earth was totally corrupt and full of violence. Now men couldn't agree about the most basic things, but they did agree on this with one notable exception. God was dead. Religion is a thing of the past, they said. We've outgrown the need for religious crutches. We've evolved past that. We're sophisticated. All except for that old coot over there trying to build that boat. And interspersed with Noah's hammer blows was his preaching of righteousness and warning the world of judgment to come. And can't you just hear him? It's going to rain, you say. That was a hundred years ago, Noah. Come on, it hasn't happened yet. Give this up. It's plain to anyone with brains that you're deceived in this whole thing. Look, if God wanted to save you, He could just give some kind of ocean cruise liner fashioned by the hands of angels. Why the century of arduous labor? You know, the ark wasn't built for travel or luxury. It was built for survival, and it wasn't anything fancy. Stench of animals especially after a year on board. But I just have to wonder, as the rains began to fall, and the fountains of the deep broke up, and the earth began to fill up like a turbulent bathtub, how many of those millions, as they were perishing from off this earth, the last thought going through their head was something like, God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Fast forward another thousand years. God's chosen people, the Jews, they've got problems. You see, for generations they've been in slavery to the most powerful nation on earth, which was Egypt. And we look at the archaeological wonders, and I think it's helpful to remember much of that was built on the backs of Jewish slave labor. And so, they begin to cry out for a deliverer, and God begins to raise one up. And now the carnal man may look and say, well, finally some credibility is going to be inserted into the situation. Finally, mankind's guests and God's plan are going to coincide. And here you have one he's raised in Pharaoh's house, son of Pharaoh's daughter. Quite possibly heir to the throne. He's educated, refined, and sophisticated. Now it makes perfect sense for him to take the throne of Egypt and liberate the Jews. Isn't that how it's going to work out? Except one strange decision Moses made to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And so for the next four decades, we find him attending to half-wit sheep in the middle of nowhere. And when his call finally comes, what happens? It's not some fancy redwood grove or botanical garden. It's a little bush out in the backside of the barren wilderness that burned and wasn't consumed because God was there. And Moses goes back to Egypt and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? You see, Moses, we've got our own gods. And I don't know if you've happened to notice, but we are not the ones who are slaves. What happened? God destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Balaam the prophet needed correction, didn't he? He was a prophet for profit. He was in it for the money. He's going to carry out his dastardly deeds, and here the angel of the Lord blocks the way with a sword drawn, a pre-incarnate Christ. Well, now, how's God going to speak to Balaam? Is He going to send one of His choice saints to do it? 
Is he going to pick one of the so-called higher evolutionized animals such as a chimpanzee to communicate the message? No, he basically says to Balaam, you're going to act like a dumb beast. I'm going to talk to you with one. A donkey turns around and rebukes him. Gideon had quite a job to do if he was going to deliver the Jews. You see, the Midianite army and the Amalekites had a they had so many soldiers that God's viewpoint was it was like the sand of the seashore for multitude. They just filled the countryside. And so Gideon raises up an army of 32,000 men. Not much, but better than nothing. Now any war general would know the outcome of this battle. Or would he? God comes to Gideon and says, uh, <clears throat> don't bother recruiting more soldiers. You see, there's a danger that what you have is going to make you claim credit for what I do. Gideon says, whoever's afraid, go home. 22,000 men leave, 10,000 stay. God says, that's still too much. You get it down to 300. Through lamps and broken pitchers and trumpets, God decimates their enemies. And what does He do? He destroys the wisdom of the wise. The Philistines had quite a champion. Here he is every day yelling at the armies of Israel, come on, you gutless chickens, you send a man out here to fight me. Was it King Saul who went, the man who stood head and shoulders above the rest with his armor? No, it was a lad by the name of David came to check on his brothers. What weapon would he use? The proven armor? Oh no, he says, I haven't used that. So with a shepherd's sling, he picks up a rock on the way, sends that giant off into eternity, and once again, God destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Remember Naaman the Syrian. He's the captain of the host of Syria. Most powerful general in the world at the time. He's just got one small problem known as leprosy. And so God sends him a little slave Jewish girl to say, oh, it's too bad you can't go see the prophet over in Israel, over in Samaria. And so he goes. Now, Naaman's expecting that Elisha's just going to come out and zap him with something. And Elisha does something interesting. He sends his messenger out and he says, go tell him to wash in the Jordan seven times. Oh, Naaman's furious, isn't he? Remember his reaction? I mean, not only will this guy not come speak with me, who does he think I am? Look, we've got rivers over in Damascus that are far better than ridiculous muddy hole he's telling me to dunk in. Why did I even come? One of his servants says, uh, Sir, I, <clears throat> I've got a question for you. You know, you come all this way, and if he told you to do something amazing, you'd do it. Why not at least try what he says? He dunks in the Jordan. He's cleansed and God destroyed the wisdom of the wise. How about the greatest biographical sketch given by the prophet Isaiah anywhere in the Old Testament? How is it the Messiah is going to be described in Isaiah 53? With what pomp and with what glory is the waiting world wanting to see? Despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. We did esteem Him, smitten of God and afflicted. He made His soul an offering for sin and it pleased the Lord to crush Him. That's the Savior of the world? You've got to be kidding me. God destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Now back to Luke 2 with me quickly. Luke chapter 2.
Most of us know the story well. Luke chapter 2. It came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, what all is happening in that account? Well, a lot of things are happening that we don't have time to speak about. Fulfilled prophecy, types and shadows and different things. But do you know one central thing that's being accomplished in those words we just read? God is still destroying the wisdom of the so-called wise. Verse 1, God uses something as basic and mundane as paying taxes. They like paying His taxes just as much as you and I do. But God used something that seemingly insignificant at just the right time to make sure... The Messiah was born in the exact city the prophet Micah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Well, of course, the Messiah wasn't going to have an earthly father because the sin nature couldn't be passed down. But who was going to be his legal father? Who among all the noblemen? Who among the tribe of Judah that was wealthy and prominent and well-respected would God choose? He chooses Joseph the humble carpenter from all places, Nazareth. But you remember Nathaniel's opinion. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He chooses Bethlehem. Not Rome. Not even Jerusalem. But Bethlehem, which has had a population from then until now roughly average 7,000 people. Not exactly a metropolis. And he bypassed the seasoned, aged women of Israel. Why not give the child to Anna the prophetess at least? Why not have the godly Zechariah and Elizabeth? He chooses the humble country girl, most likely a teenager by the name of Mary, to bear the Messiah. There in that town, Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, that's what the name means, the very place where the Passover lambs were raised to sacrifice. The bread of life entered the world and was first displayed in the feeding trough to give His life for the sins of the world. And now what about this angelic appearance? Man, of course, wants to save his own skin, but angels don't need to worry about that so much, do they? An angel appears, and wherever he appears, he can do what he wants. What are you and I going to do about it? Of course, human logic says what? If this message is going to change the world, listen, this is good tidings of great joy to all people. Why not send the angels to Caesar's palace there in Rome, right in his bedchamber about midnight? Well, if not Caesar, then surely Herod, the tetrarch of Judea, the one who was at least the lesser king right in the area around Jerusalem. No, no, not Herod, you say. Well, at least the Jewish Sanhedrin, at least the religious elite, at least those that were the movers and shakers of religious culture. 
He bypassed all the palaces, bypassed the wealthy, bypassed the influential, bypassed the elite, bypassed the logical choice. And it was to these shepherds just doing their mundane duty on the hill outside Bethlehem, sitting there in the darkness of night, maybe cold, staring at the stars, and all of a sudden the sky explodes with these angels. Gives them the news. And what about the logic of the sign that's going to be given? You've got to remember the angels say to these guys, He's, he's here. Listen, this message was 4,000 years in the making. And the angels say, This shall be a sign unto you. Gold-plated carriages and white stallions, trumpets blowing and people bowing down, garments strewn in the way. All of Israel rejoicing, all of Rome bowing, maybe Caesar's guard himself leading the procession. This shall be a sign unto you, the angels say. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. These guys were shepherds and they knew what that meant. A manger to them wasn't a cute little baby crib we see on a stage somewhere. It was a dirty, slobbered up feeding trough of animals. That's the sign? What's their response? How would the intelligentsia have responded to that message, I wonder? That's the sign? This is moronic. What kind of king is born and put in a manger? What kind of savior of mankind is entrusted to the hand of peasants? Of course, their response was to go, to go see. Do you know why? Because they saw in that announcement the power of God. This child grows up to manhood and the wisdom of the wise was being destroyed by his simple life. By the fact that he had nowhere to lay his head. By the fact that when he was 12, he's asking questions of the religious doctors of the day and leaving them there stumped and astounded. He destroyed the wisdom of the wise by the way he mingled with commoners, by the way he cleansed the temple twice, by the way he rebuked the religious elite repeatedly. And now how about those entrusted with this world-changing message? Which sturdy and mighty man is he going to give it to to go preach? Or maybe it will be put in the hands of angels. He picks a group of largely stubborn blue-collar roughnecks. And he says, you guys are going to go turn the world upside down because I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And finally, on that day, outside the walls of Jerusalem, God was destroying the wisdom of the wise when the Son of God lay there nailed to a cross. The elite, the intelligentsia, the who's who, the rich and famous, they wanted the glitz and the glamour. They wanted the Hollywood version. They wanted the designer Messiah. 
They wanted him to make perfect sense. They wanted him to bypass their sin. And so there he hang there, bleeding and dying, and they walk by wagging their heads, saying, Come down from the cross if you're the king of the Jews. But there were some. Another criminal on the cross next door. A centurion. You know what they saw when they looked at that cross? They saw the power of God. You know, there's one final demonstration of God's destroying the wisdom of the wise that's remaining. What are the wise saying today? Exactly what Peter said they would say 2,000 years ago. Where is the promise of His coming? They're saying. For since the beginning of the creation, all things continue as they were. When's he going to come back? You've been saying this for two millennia. There's no flood. We came from apes. Science has proven that. Oh, has it? Where's Jesus, they say? Let him show himself. God, if you're real, display yourself to me. Show us a sign and we'll believe. You know what's ironic about that? The royal conquering, terrifying Messiah that all the who's who were clamoring after, guess what? He's going to come back. And when He comes back in that day, He's not coming in a manger. He's not going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And He's not going to be a humble carpenter from Nazareth. You see, man has this penchant for wanting things from God, either that he didn't give or at a time when he's promised not to give them. People say, I want the Messiah to come in power. Oh, he's going to come in power. People say, I want to see miracles and signs. Well, they'll get that too, won't they? As the stars begin to fall out of the heavens as every island is moved out of its place, as all the mountains are reduced to rubble, as fissures in the earth's surface open up and the very sulfuric smoke of hell comes billowing out, the sky rolls back as a scroll. You want your sign? You're going to get it. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. The promise of His coming that hasn't happened, oh, that's going to be fulfilled too. People say, I want to see Him. Every eye shall See Him. But for most, it's going to be too late. Most do not want to see that God is destroying the wisdom of the wise. They demand that God bows to their intellectual level and makes sense to them. Let me warn you, the God that made the universe out of nothing has a whole lot more authority than you do. How dare mankind try to challenge that? What do you see when you see the nativity scene or read the Christmas story? Or you sit here and you listen to a message like that? Moronic, you say. Foolishness. First of all, preaching this, I expect some people to react that way, so I'm not too bothered by it. But let me tell you this, God is the majority. If you're sitting here, you hear the message of the cross and the death of Christ, and you say it's foolishness, let me tell you this, you are perishing. 
But you don't have to. You don't have to. God has said, whosoever will may come. How about you as a Christian sitting here? Many of us are going to go home today. We're going to read the so-called Christmas story. We will. I know some of you will. I want to challenge you to see it a little bit differently. Not just a traditional story. Not just the fulfillment of prophecy. It is that. Not a story in and of itself, but part of an unfolding drama of redemption that God began in the Garden of Eden and is finishing right here. When you read the Christmas story, you can look and you can say, I see in it the power of God. And I bless God that He's destroying the wisdom of the wise. Can God do the cataclysmic? He sure can, but He doesn't need to. God prefers to work most of the time in humble packaging. And to those with eyes to see, they look in that manger and they don't just see a helpless infant, they see one who would grow up. And although the world rejects Him, they see the light of the world. They see the only hope of mankind. They see the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And they're not going to be ashamed, no matter who mocks. Multitudes of the elite have come and gone. How many palaces have you seen in the history books that are buried under rubble? Guess what? If the world lives a normal existence, Trump Tower is going to be under that rubble too. Let's trust God instead of men. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You that truth will be vindicated. And Lord, we frankly admit it is frustrating at times, especially in this culture, to be labeled so old-fashioned and everything else. Lord, our goal isn't to be old-fashioned as such, but we want to be accurate with what You said. And Lord, I thank You that the old cross and the message of the Savior that came so long ago is the hope of mankind. And the old way is a true way and there is no new way. Help us, Lord, to worship You. Lord, because this is not by accident. This isn't just a byproduct. This is something You designed deliberately to bring to nothing the understanding of the so-called prudent. Father, thank You You can be trusted. Thank You that You are so patient with this current world. In Jesus' name, Amen.